You're listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast. You're listening to episode 402 and I'm your co-host, Brittany Martin. A quick shout out before we get started. Do you ever feel like you've hit a plateau in your career and you're not sure what to do next? How to Get to Senior is a series of case study interviews with a select group of Ruby professionals to get your career to the next level. Go to hexdevs.com senior to grab your copy today. Link will be in the show notes. Joining me today is Pancakes. That's right. Her name is Pancakes. Pancakes LaServe spends her time outside when possible. You can find her mountain biking, skiing, or laying in hammocks with a nice crispy Pacifico. She is also a artist and has picked up a new hobby of wood burning. Weekend adventures are her jam. And during the week, you can find her working pantsless or in a onesie with her dog, Jack, as her coworker. Oh, and she's also our senior UX designer at Textus. I am so excited to have you here today. I was holding in my lap this entire time. <laughs> Thank you. Well, it's great to have you. I'm expecting some really hot takes today. Uh, it's probably going to be a different vibe on the podcast today. So listeners, tuck in and enjoy. So first of all, Pancakes, why do we call you Pancakes? So usually at a job, I am the first Nikki, but this one, I am the second Nikki. And I was so tired of getting Slack messages that were related to customer service that I had no idea what they were talking about. So I just went and I switched my Slack name to Pancakes. And now everyone just calls me Pancakes. It's very professional. Remind me, who told you to switch your Slack name? Oh, that was you. Yeah, that was me. And one of the best things I think I've done to Texas. So Pancakes, what is your UX origin story? So this is a kind of roundabout way that I got into UX, but... I started out, I went to college for film with a concentration in post-production and I had every intention of editing movies, doing motion graphics. In college, I got a job as a editor and I absolutely hated it. I did not want to sit in a room all day alone looking at the same footage over and over. So I taught myself Photoshop. I lied a little bit on a resume and created a fake graphic design portfolio and ended up getting a internship at Coupon Cabin for graphic design. They're great. They've saved me so much money with all my online shopping. But then I got a new job after Coupon Cabin and I found out about the world of UX and I absolutely loved it. I just wanted to see users actually go and interact with my designs where graphic design is more static. So again, fibbed a little bit on my resume, created a fake portfolio, got into UX, and that is where I am today. Awesome. So what is a typical day for a UX designer? Oh, there is no typical day. It really depends on what's on the agenda and what phase you're in. And every day is a new day, which is why I love what I do. What department does UX really sit in? Is it part of product? Is it engineering? Does it depend on the company? Where do you fit into the organization? So UX doesn't really fit in anywhere. It kind of straddles between product and engineering, but I wouldn't say that it really fits into a department. It's more its own department. That makes sense. So if listeners are curious, how do you recommend getting started in UX? So there's a few different ways to go about it. I came from already the world of graphic design. So it was easy to transition into UX already having that kind of visual design background for UI. There's a couple different ways that I would recommend. One being a bootcamp. 
but just do your due diligence and research and see who the professors are, who's going to be teaching you, if there's a syllabus or some kind of course plan. And then also if there's some kind of real world experience or project, there's only so much that you can learn through kind of like a classroom. And then there's a whole ton of stuff that comes along from a real world project where you start working with an engineering team and stakeholders and possibly other designers on a design team. Another way is if you already are within some kind of tech company to make yourself heard that you do want to move into a UX department, whether there's a job opening for a junior designer or if they're starting to build out a design team. A lot of times it would be easier to just transfer within a company because you already are familiar with the product, the company's culture. You already have some knowledge of what you would need to be doing within the new role. I totally agree. And while listeners might think that's like lightning striking that, you know, a role is going to open up in your company with something that you want to do. That actually happened to me at a startup. I was working in business development. I wanted to move into engineering, but really thought that I might be a good fit for product management. And so I raised my hand and said, hey, can I do business development halftime, product management halftime? And, you know, I liked products so much that eventually I made it a full-time role and then I learned how to code. But I completely agree. You just have to get in the habit of raising your hand and saying, hey, I'm interested in this because you really have to advocate for yourself. Yeah, and don't be afraid to speak up, especially if it's a startup usually like a smaller company and people are more open to like job transitions like that. Another way that you can get into UX is there's so many online resources and tutorials that you really don't have to spend the money or the time on bootcamp if you don't have it. You can really go ahead and after hours, after your regular job, just spend a few hours every night doing some kind of tutorial, watching something on YouTube and then start putting together a portfolio and then just put yourself out there and like small businesses, they're always looking for a website or some kind of help and just start growing your portfolio with that real world experience. Maybe start looking for internships to gain that resume experience as well, but you don't necessarily need a degree or bootcamp certification to get into UX. I love that. This episode is brought to you by Hook Relay from our friends at Honey Badger. Do you integrate your apps with third parties like Stripe, GitHub, Slack, or Trello? If you want quality webhooks like Stripe's, for example, there's more than just sending a JSON payload to your customer's URL and calling it a day, right? That's where Hook Relay comes in. Hook Relay is a service that makes sending and receiving webhooks reliable, secure, and transparent automatically. Users are amazed at the visibility they've gained into their webhooks. Without Hook Relay, you have no idea how many requests you're processing. With Hook Relay, you can watch your traffic, inspect each request, and much more. It's like x-ray vision. Of course, if your app or your integration partners are being flaky, you'll love the peace of mind that comes with knowing that no matter what happens, Hook Relay will make sure that your webhooks are delivered. Skip days of grunt work rolling your own webhook system and get reliable webhooks for your app in minutes, not days. Go to hookrelay.dev to get started and check webhooks off your to-do list. So I know that you do actually something really difficult within your role, and that is talking to customers and executing all those customer interviews. What is your best advice for customer interviews? So this is my favorite part of the job is 
talking to customers because this is where you get firsthand experience and knowledge. There's only so much you can know as a designer. You're not using the product as a customer every day. So some of my advice for a customer interview is to go in with an agenda and a plan and know what you want to talk to these customers about. Maybe have some kind of prototype put together and have a bunch of questions as well. But don't make the questions leading. Have them very open-ended so that the customers can tell you their experience without being led to an answer that you're looking for. I love that. Well, we are going to move on to a section of this interview, and that is moving on to spicy hot takes from Pancakes about UX. I have a list of topics, and how this is going to work is I'm going to read off the topic, you're going to react to it, and then I'm going to confirm whether or not you reacted the way that I thought you would. Sound good? Oh my God, I can't wait. First one, and this one really grinds my gears. Everyone should copy whatever Stripe is doing. Okay, honestly, I had to Google what Stripe was, so no. There's (laughs) People are industry leaders for a reason, and it is good to go and do your research of why they are an industry leader, but just because somebody else is doing something doesn't mean it's going to work for your product. It's good to keep things in mind and do your research, but just because somebody's doing it and it's working for them doesn't mean that it's going to work for you. Well, if you ever want to be amused, take a look at the Stripe homepage and then look at a random five startups on Product Hunt and you will see some copying. I promise you. I don't doubt it. Okay. Second one. Bootstrap should never be used. So there's a time and a place for bootstrap. Definitely smaller stage startups where you just don't have the resources for a big engineering team, a big design team. And it's easy to pull already made components and libraries where it's just going to save time and money. But if you are a big company, there's no excuse not to have your own design system. I'm sure that there's a big design team. I'm sure that there's a big engineering team. And I'm also sure that there's just a design team dedicated to a design system and brand guidelines. Let's define that. What is a design system? Because I have a style guide, does that mean I have a design system? So a style guide is part of a design system, but a design system also includes a component library. So think of it as all the buttons, all the input fields, everything that the design team can pull from, and then everything that the engineering, the front end team can use, reusable components and reusable code. So there's usually three parts of a design system. So the style guide is colors, logos, more on the marketing side. And then there is the component library. So that's all the components that both the design team and the engineering team can pull from. And then there's also some sort of design documentation. So some kind of guidelines of this is when you use a primary button or this is when you use a secondary button, some kind of documentation for the entire design team to be able to pull from so that it is consistent across the product. That makes total sense. Moving on to the next one, designers should design, coders should code. I don't agree with that at all. I think that designers should work very closely with engineers. Engineers have a really unique perspective on how things get built and they might be able to tell the design team if something could be designed in an easier way 
that won't take six months. It would just take six days. Working with you as an engineering lead, there are many times where I've come to you and said, hey, this design is great because obviously you created it. But the thing that you want to pull here, yeah, it is going to take a couple months. But if we did this one little workaround, is that going to hit what you are trying to accomplish here? And there are many times where you're like, yep, that's fine. And then sometimes there are hills that you die on pancakes. You're like, nope, I've interviewed so many customers. We got to do it this way. We need to reallocate resources to make sure this happens. And so it's it's definitely a give and take for sure. Yeah, you really got to figure out where to pick your battles. Agreed. Next one, because you've made a wireframe, you are now a designer. That's like saying that I know Photoshop, so I'm a graphic designer. There's a lot more that goes into just making a wireframe. Just starting with discovering customer interviews and doing research, just because you can put some buttons on a page doesn't mean you're a designer. Being a UX designer includes a lot of creative and critical thinking. It's not just putting buttons on a page. Everything has to be very intentional. And a lot of that comes from being able to do research and being able to conduct a customer interview without creating those leading questions. So you are actually being able to design a wireframe, which will eventually get turned into UI in the correct way. It's perfect. And exactly how I thought you would answer that. Oh, perfect. (laughs) I'm winning so far. If you have good taste, you don't need to talk to customers. I kind of touched on this in the beginning. As a designer, you're designing the product, but you're not using it every day. So there's only so much that you can know that you do have to go talk to customers. Because if I'm not using the product that I'm designing, the way that a customer is using it daily, there's something that I'm missing that I need to have it filled in by our users. That was definitely a softball. Now we're going to move on to some topics where I'm actually not sure how you're going to answer. So Uh, the next one, oh, brace yourself. (laughs) The next one, we learn when it is live. So we do learn a lot when something goes live, especially with user analytics and something that should be in the requirements before something goes live is how do we want to measure the success? So depending on the feature that gets released, it's Is it by users? Is it by usage? Well, I agree with you. I think that you have to toe the line between it going live and you sending out a very polished product because you've done all these interviews and the customers are not surprised. I think there's always going to be a situation where you just want to get something out there and just see people use it and see whether or not they care about it. But you also don't want to send out like half-baked stuff. Yeah, you definitely want to spend the time and do things right the first way. Because if you're just going to go and ship a huge feature without doing your due diligence of research and talking to customers, it's just a, it could be real bad. Agreed. Hi, everyone. It's Brian, your co-host. I'd like to talk to you about something that is very near and dear to my heart. And that's the software consultancy I co-founded in 2001, Atlantis Technology. Some of the longtime listeners here may know Mirror was born out of Atlantis back in 2006 when we figured, let's try being Ruby engineers who recruit Ruby engineers. It was a unique idea that clicked and now has become my life's work. But while I've been growing Mirror for the past 15 years, Atlantis has continued to grow as well. Atlantis still specializes in Ruby on Rails software development and collaborates on some pretty meaningful projects. Here are a couple of my favorites. 
an interactive education tool to help elementary school students learn how to read. How cool is that, right? The second is a SaaS application for clinics and hospitals to treat patients remotely. So my point is the work we do is really meaningful and impactful to others. But the best part is the work gets done by great developers who also happen to be great people. Atlantis has always attracted egoless, empathetic engineers who love working together, and we are actively seeking more remote engineers to help build the future for our clients. While I'm not doing the actual recruiting for Atlantis myself, since my time is so focused on mirror clients, it'd be my privilege to connect you with our CTO and co-founder, John Collier, who after 19 years, I still describe as one of the most relentlessly positive human beings I know. If you'd like to meet John and hear more about working at Atlantis, just drop me an email at brian at mirrorplacement.com and I'll make an intro or apply directly at atlantistech.com. We'll put a link in the show notes. Now, the next one, and I'm curious your take on this, user testing should be handled like a focus group. Okay, no, absolutely not. There you go. <laughs> next so, one. Uh, <laughs> oh, go ahead. <laughs> Let me elaborate on that a little bit more. So no, I don't think it should be handled like a focus group. I think that you should be very intentional when you're doing user testing, having some kind of script or goal or agenda when you're going into a testing session, because you really do want to be able to validate what you're doing is correct and that users aren't getting confused. They're being able to go to point A to point B pretty easily. So this one, I think I know how you're going to answer. Design by committee should die. Absolutely, yes. And it's a pitfall of a lot of startups too, that if you do discovery and research and customer interviews, you really should have a good idea when you do get into the wireframe and UI phase of this is the path that we should start going down. And then when it does go live, that's where you can see the actual results of is what you designed correct. But having a whole bunch of people, it's just too many cooks in the kitchen. It ends up being a roundabout circle that just becomes frustrating for everyone. Have you seen that comic where it's a developer who designs like this very beautiful website and they let the CEO of the company take a look at it. And the CEO is like, oh, we could change like a couple colors here, maybe the heading here. And it's all very sane. And you're like, oh, the developer's like, no problem. Those are little changes. We can definitely do that. And then the CEO is like, hey, we're going to bring in more people to put their opinions in. And it ends up cultivating in the CEO getting the cat's opinion. <laughs> and so like it ends up being this like garbage wreck of a website. And so then the developer like shows the original website to the CEO. was like, what about this? And the CEO is like, that's perfect. That's exactly what I was looking for. So I imagine that you've been caught in those loops before. Oh my God, yes. And they're annoying, frustrating, and just a waste of time where it's just everyone has an opinion and it's all opinion that there's no data or research to back it up. It's just, I think that we should do it this way. Let's do it that way. And unfortunately, a lot of times when that happens, it is at that more like leadership executive level where it's like, well, you are the boss and it's your company. So sure, I guess we have to do it this way. So two thoughts here. I worked with a design company in Pittsburgh. They've since broken up, but they were really wonderful. And one of their things when they would go to do a project is they would identify the person within a company that is likely to destroy the design. <laughs> and so they would interview that person as early as possible. They called it the swoop and poop. 
So if yep. whoever was going to come in and just destroy the design or hate it, you just needed to make sure that that person felt very listened to very early on. That's a pretty great way to handle it because usually when the swoop and poop does happen, it's like at the very last minute and everything has to go and start over. So that's just like the running in circles part. And usually when a swoop and poop happens, it's tragedy. It is tragedy. Now I worked with another designer who would actually purposely make errors on her design. So when the design went in front of a committee, the committee would absolutely focus on her like tiny mistakes and not nitpick her on the overall vision. Have you ever thought of that before? Yeah. And it's really smart. And if there are different versions of a design, you really have to think about the order that you present it in and the way that you present it. Because as a designer, if you do have that knowledge from discovery and you know that there is one or two that are the way to go, this is the opposite of a customer interview. You have to go and sway, kind of like inceptionize the stakeholders that, yeah, this is the way that we have to go. Agreed. Next one, you should always hire in-house. Yes and no. It depends on the size of the company, kind of the budget, what the project is. I did work in consulting for a few years and there are times where it is worthwhile to go and hire consultants or outside agencies. But if it's something big and there is the budget and the resources, just hire in-house because a lot of times consultants and agencies, they go ahead and they cut corners just to save time and money. And a lot of times you just don't get the same level of work as if you were to go and hire in-house. Last one. And I'm really curious on this one because I think I'm going to feel, I'm, I think I'm going to feel differently than you, but some things should be designed to be difficult to use. So I read this question. And I was like, this is stupid. Of course, you don't want to design anything to be difficult. But then I really thought about it. And there should be some things that are difficult to use that you really do need to turn your brain on to get to point A or point B. One of these that I can think of is just like a phishing scam. So you get an email, hey, you need to update your password or your account is at risk to be hacked or something. Click on this link to reset your password. And then you just go ahead and give these fishers your password, which seems easy. Oh, like I just saved my account from being hacked. But in reality, you just let the scammers hack your account. You just gave them that on the silver platter. Another thing I thought about too is a film camera. It's so easy to just take a picture on your phone nowadays, but being able to manually be able to choose the aperture and the shutter speed and manually focus, you have so many more options for taking a picture and getting it the way that you want. Whereas if you do have just a camera on your phone, and I know that there's apps where you have more manual control, But it's just, it's still not the same. And it's definitely harder to use a film camera or like some kind of manual camera. But in the end, you do get a much better result where you have more control over it. So we agreed on this one for different reasons, I would say. And my thoughts are, if you have to do anything destructive, it should be really difficult to do. You shouldn't be allowed to just hit 
select all and delete, no confirmation, no type in. I mean, there are so many things that are difficult to use. I think infamously, Amazon Web Services, you log in, you look at that dashboard, you don't know what's going on, but I don't want you deleting my website. So it should be really hard to do. It should be really hard to give somebody access, you know, root access into your server. Those are things that should be difficult. But I also like your take on let's not destroy the art of things either. Like some things should be difficult to do just because they acquire finesse. And so let's not auto-complete that away from all those people. Let's not kill the art in using some things and let's make it difficult to use. Because when you actually achieve it, and I'm looking at you, Sourdough Starter, it feels really good. Yeah, for sure. And being able to mass delete without having a confirmation has gotten us in trouble so many times. Oh, it sure has, hasn't it? (laughs) Well, this is normally the part of the show where I would ask Pancakes how the listeners can follow her, but she is unfindable on the internet. So listeners, this was your exposure to Pancakes. And if for some reason you do want to get in touch with her, you can definitely reach out through me. Pancakes, thank you so much for coming onto the show and sharing your controversial UX hot takes. Oh, thank you for having me. You've been listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded to stay in the loop on Ruby on Rails and open source software. While you're at it, please leave us a review. And thank you for listening.